Hello, and welcome to the Free Music Ed Podcast. What you've been listening to is a piece called Final Creatures from the album Bug Music by musician, professor, and author David Rothenberg. David Rothenberg is a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and a researcher in animal music. Uh, He also plays the clarinet and the saxophone and uh, does so with the animals. We're very excited to have you today. How are you doing? Good. Could you tell us how you became uh, a researcher of animal music? Well, I think it went back to growing up in Connecticut, the edge of the countryside between suburbia and the countryside, and really being interested in how I could connect my interest in music with my love of nature and the environment. And I think it was in high school I heard this musician, Paul Winter, who also lived in Connecticut, and he was combining... uh, the sounds of different creatures, wolves and whales and eagles, and made this record called Common Ground. came out in the 1970s. I read about it in the New York Times, and I realized he actually lived pretty close to me. And so soon after, I, I went to hear him play, and I got to know him and all the musicians working with him. And he was the first person I heard who did this kind of thing. And although I had this early exposure to this, it was many years before I started doing it myself, actually. I sort of thought it had all been done for like 20 years or so. And then I realized that, you know, there's really a lot, a lot more that could be explored in this area. And in fact, very few musicians and composers and musicologists were really thinking about the musical possibilities of the natural world or the fact that animals are really making music and that we can learn so much from them once we think that's what they're doing. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. And Paul Winters does some neat stuff. Uh, let me ask you this. I think that from the very start to have any type of discussion about this, we, we have to kind of settle in on what a definition of music is so that we can go on. Because I've, I've heard so many things anywhere from all sound is music to that music is uniquely human. How do you define music? Well, often the definitions that you learn in school or in class, they're, they're sort of relentlessly unsatisfying. Someone will say music is organized sound or someone else will say music is sound that's set aside. You're supposed to sit and listen to it. And it could be anything what someone tells you, sit and listen to this and that makes it music. But when it comes to um, trying to understand animal communication as music, I find the best way to explain it is look at how the functional definitions of what animals are doing are not enough to explain what they are actually doing. For example, You can study biology and you'll learn that birds are singing to attract mates and defend territories. That's what the male birds are doing. That is what birdsong means. And it's more or less true, but what's lacking from that definition is anything that explains why one bird sounds different from any other. Why does a mockingbird need to sing for hours at a time? And a chickadee just sings a short phrase over and over and over again. The the function is the same in both cases. If you want to understand the difference, the difference is in the music, is in the way they do this thing. The function does not explain the activity. And I also think it makes sense to understand these um, birds are the easiest to talk about in this regard because it's so clear that people throughout history have called what they do songs, bird songs. What they're doing is performing these little pieces of music over and over and over again. Why do I say it's music? If it was language, the message would be gotten across. It would be said. You don't need to hear the message over and over and over again if it's language. But if it's music, we hear the same things over and over and over again. We still want to hear them more. 
and then the structure of these these sounds are you know they're performances with an emotional content with a beginning a middle and end a shape and a form and rules and if then you start to study evolution then you realize each species has its own aesthetic sense they've evolved a predilection to like certain kinds of sounds somehow this happened and this is something that darwin was well aware of and wrote very clearly in descent of man he said birds have a natural aesthetic sense that's why they have beautiful feathers and beautiful songs because they appreciate them that's how the evolution happened so if you want to turn all that into a definition of music i think i would say it's a sound that is uh, performed with a sense of organization with a sense of purpose with a sense of shape and form and above all a sense of this emotional content where it, where it must be performed for its value to happen you can't just describe it you can't just uh, say what it is it has to it has it has to be performed so that's not really a very good definition except it, it sort of explains why i think there's music in the sounds of the animal world i'm a bird enthusiast and there's there's two parrots that live in my home uh, i would say that i own them but i think they're in charge anyway and they're they're brilliant they're incredibly smart animals and there's been a lot of researchers uh the first one that comes to mind is irene pepperberg that just looked into all the things that the animals are thinking. And I don't think it's a stretch at all to think that they enjoy making music. And parrots are so interesting because they don't imitate much in the wild. You know, wild parrots are not imitating too many other creatures' sounds. But wow, how come if you put them in captivity, they can imitate all kinds of things? Why do they have that ability that they don't use in their wild life? It's very strange. Uh, strange and, and interesting. It kind of goes to, to reason that they're able to cope in those different environments by learning those different sounds. You actually have a, a pretty significant trilogy of books that you've just completed between uh, Why Birds Sing, All About Birds, Thousand Mile Song, All About the Music of Whales, and Bug Music, which you've just completed, which is all about bug music. Why did you pick these three particular uh, types of animals? My first project on music and nature was an edited anthology called the book of music and nature which is published by wesleyan university press and this is like the first anthology trying to show there's a, there's some sort of thing that can be studied here and there we picked all these articles by different researchers musicians composers and anthropologists and excerpts from fiction and poetry and and things that we thought were making this connection. And that came with a CD of many different people's music. It's still around. And that's used in various courses and classes around the world. So that was my first foray into this project. After that, I thought about doing my own book on the music of animals. And the first vision of it was it was going to be one book on all kinds of animals and music. One chapter on birds, one on whales, one on frogs, one on insects. And it turned out that nobody wanted to publish that book. And then I got the idea, well, why not just do it on birds? Once I got through my resistance, I thought that there must be enough books on bird song. Turned out there weren't really from the musical perspective. So that was the first one. That was in 2005 that came out. And after that, that was probably the most popular of these. It came out in many languages around the world because people love bird song. And the, the connection, the idea of bird sounds being musical is something a lot of people were immediately sympathetic to. And then I said, okay, now I want to do whales. And a lot of people said, what are you talking about? What's musical about whales? And people seem to have forgotten that when the song of the humpback whale was 
publicly kind of announced and, and made known the end of the 1960s. It really was a sensation all over the world. People are amazed that these giant creatures under the sea were making these incredible sounds that we had no idea about. And that they really were long pieces of music. A, a humpback whale could sing for 24 hours at a time, repeating something that's really a, a structured musical thing that's like 20 minutes long. And no one had any idea that creatures under the sea were doing things like this. And it's still, we don't really know why this one species of whale needs to perform like this. But it really is much more like music than like um, language, because they're repeating the same structured thing over and over and over again. A song that has different parts, different phrases, different repetitive parts, different rules, and the very mysterious thing that they change it from year to year to year. After that... I decided insects had to be next because uh, I'd always been intrigued by this different musicality of bugs, which is more based on noise and repeating rhythms. And so it seemed like this was a natural next step. I don't have any plans for a, a fourth one in, in, in this series at the moment, although the best idea I've had to do another one would be the sounds of the earth, sounds of wind, sounds of earthquakes inanimate aspects of the natural world, what might be musical about that. I find that kind of intriguing. But at the moment, I do see it as a trilogy of books. And then now, the next step, I think, is to really perform more, go out and play based on these ideas, and particularly go and try and get more music students all around the world to, to, to maybe people should be required to study the music of animals. It should be a standard unit that everyone has to do. And, and as I'm sure you know, it's pretty much now considered very radical and strange to look at this stuff. And there's really nowhere you can study the music of animals. And it's not, it's not in the program yet. You're absolutely right, because I know whenever I was coming across your work, this was all completely new to me. And I, I, I got my bachelor's degree in music education, and uh, I studied a number of things that I don't think were quite as practical as the music of nature might have been. Yeah, of course, it's... It's useful to study impractical things. We know that. But I definitely think uh, one next step is to really figure out how to connect this to music education at many levels. Next year, I'm on sabbatical, and I'll be in Berlin. I'll be teaching at the University of the Arts in Berlin, working on just this very thing. And I gave one workshop there last year, and students really seem to like it, many different kinds of students. And strangely enough, it's I'll be based in the musicology department there, which is kind of known for being kind of very straight ahead and kind of conservative. But the dean now is really excited about this possibility and says we really should go into this. Like it really is worth investigating and taking more seriously. So I'm looking forward to that. Do you think that perhaps the reason that it's not taught so much is that most people have absolutely no understanding of what's going on? Because I, I find your work pretty unique. Does there just need to be more research and more work done into the music and nature for it to catch on? I think people don't really think of it as music. Like, consider even Olivier Messiaen, you know, the most famous composer to have explicitly said, much of my music is based on the songs of birds. Okay, so he wrote all this music. He tells you very specifically what bird songs are here, which ones are there. Well, after he died, his widow put out two 600-page volumes of all of his transcriptions of bird song that he made in the field like his raw transcriptions. And then in this book, it shows, okay, here's the transcription. Here's how it made it into his music. This is an amazing resource of stuff, 
Hardly anyone has cracked open these books. Maybe there's one or two papers written about it. Why don't they look at this when there's so much written on Messiaen being a famous composer? The reason is, I think, that people don't think it's music. They think it's some sort of half musical, half something. Ornithologists look at it and say, well, this isn't really accurate. We can't use this to study the songs of these birds. And the people, musicologists studying Messiaen's music say, well, he's not presenting this as music, so we don't know what to do with it. But actually, it's so interesting in itself because um, Messiaen was a composer with very specific rules of how to do everything. So once he'd take these transcriptions, he'd mix them with his theories of harmony, his ideas about rhythm that he got from Asia, and then he would put it all together. By the time it's in his music, it clearly sounds like Messiaen, no matter what bird he began with, whereas the raw transcriptions sound like all kinds of different things, and he wrote really interesting notes about what he was hearing. So one of my upcoming projects is to try and ter- use these transcriptions kind of as jazz charts and have people play right from them, you know, as a basis for music mixing, you know, the, the chart and then improvisation based on that. So take those transcriptions in a different direction. And people will argue about it. They'll say, you can't do that. You're messing with Messiaen's music. Or they'll say, it's not even his music. What are you even doing here? But it's actually an aspect of his work that just hasn't been explored enough. Playing uh, bird songs as jazz compositions, I, I find that really interesting. Uh, on the website, Why Birds Sing, that's connected to your book, you have a transcription of a song that you compare to a Miles Davis solo, and it's surprising how much it kind of follows along music theory. Yeah, that's a great example. And also, you hear that sound in the forest, like around here, you hear them, this is the time of year, the veery is going, it's always one of the weirdest bird songs and most people don't know what it is because you never see them but that's the one song when i slowed it down it was just shocking what it sounded like and most people just are shocked they can't believe it because it really ends up being and then you know that's just uh it's something everyone should go out and take all kinds of sounds from nature and slow them down or speed them up and find out what's there. There's so many things out there that have not really been explored and thought about. And I think that um, there's so much to be done there, so many things to explore. And the more you you find out about this, the more you you wish more people would know about it. Like in insects, the sounds of tree hoppers is like aphid-like bugs that tap on the, on the stalks of trees that they live on to communicate with each other. The sounds are so strange and complex and hardly anyone knows about them. And they're getting more known now that there's all this, you know, kind of media and radio stories and these things are all available. They don't go away. It used to be something would be on the radio. You could hear it once. Now it's all there online. You can find it. But still, people don't find enough of these things. There's so much we can explore that... Uh, it's just out there and, and people need to be encouraged. You know, I think music student, students at all levels can learn something from this and hopefully there'll be more and more people trying these things out. It's just, it's just very, very few people say who've written dissertations on, on the music of animals because it's unclear what department it's going to fit in, you know, who, who's going to advise them. But there's, you know, I would encourage many more people to do this and then and in education to figure out how to connect it to music education at all levels. Well, I'm, I'm sure that that's fundamental to really getting the music of nature into the consciousness of our musicians and music students is that we start implementing it as early as we can. Uh, one of the interesting things about your approach, I think, is not only do you research different animal sounds, but you participate in making music with animals. And there's some really amazing examples of 
uh, you playing the clarinet with a, a laughing thrush, for example, that you know, you can actually see this bird participating, like it's interacting with you musically. The interesting thing about this duet is this is the very moment I, I realized this whole thing was, was interesting. Like if you look at the trajectory, in the book of music and nature, I had a piece by Michael Pestel, this artist who lived in Pittsburgh, and he kept telling me, you have to come to Pittsburgh and play with these birds here in the National Aviary. And I said, okay, okay, we'll arrange this. And so when I went there, I was wandering with my clarinet early in the morning, and most of the birds were ignoring me except this laughing thrush. And, and Michael was there. He happened to film this. We didn't know anything would happen. He happened to just be there with his camera and filmed this, this, ep this very moment when I first realized you could play music with birds and they might actually respond. I had no idea at the time why the laughing thrush was so responsive until later I learned that this species uses sound in a whole different way than most. The males and females sing duets together and not very simple duets, but kind of complicated phrases back and forth. And this male was alone in this kind of open cage, and, you know, he, he heard a sound like what he wanted to play along with. And who knows when the last time was he had heard such a sound. So that made it sort of exciting and interactive. But I didn't know anything about that at the time, and later when I looked into it, I was surprised how little had been written about this phenomenon. Again, just one or two papers had ever been written on the duetting of laughing thrushes. And you realize how much of this kind of uh, happening out in nature was um, available for more people to investigate and, and study and play around with. There's so much out there. There's so many species of creatures doing interesting things, and hardly any of them do we know much about. I think you're absolutely right. And that, that was really interesting. Did you have other birds that you felt interacted with that type of level of interaction as you continued that's one of the best, but there's others I would recommend. The, the, the Shama thrush, a bird from India that's kept as a pet in different parts of the world. They're really interesting singers. And there was one in the aviary. They live wild in Hawaii. I've seen them there. In some parts of the world, people keep them as pets. I don't think in the United States. But they are very, they're very interactive, make really interesting sounds. And so if I was going to keep a bird as a pet and play along with it, I would pick a Shama thrush. You know, it's, it's reputed that in, in, in Germany, people kept bullfinches as, as pets. And these birds, although they're na natural song, again, it's a story like the parrots who don't imitate in the wild. Bullfinches' song in the wild is, is very fuzzy and not very interesting. But in captivity, they can be taught to sing 
any kind of melody you whistle to them, and and they can learn things. And if you if you sing things out of tune, they'll fix them. They understand scales, and there used to be a tradition in Germany of keeping of having competitions of singing bullfinches. Where people would train which ones can sing the best songs. They'd have they'd have all competitions. Maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty years ago, and we don't know again why this bird can do that. How can it tell when something's out of tune when it doesn't naturally sing in the, these scales? It's very strange. That's really strange, yeah. I have some examples of it, some recordings of that that I, a guy in Germany gave me. And I have this like 100-page paper in German demonstrating this. You know, because people didn't believe him. You know, and so the scientist wrote out this whole thing. This is what the bird is doing. And again, it's the kind of thing that's not studied that much because it's so – it seems anomalous. Nobody wants to hear about it. It's – um it's uh you know one of the many things that confuse our understanding of nature as being kind of rational and statistical and some of the in why birds sing i I, in some cases criticize some bird song scientists for being satisfied with two simple explanations like they would like to say okay in the species with complex bird songs the birds with the with the longest songs or the most number of variations have the most mating success it turns out that only works in a few species. The majority of species that make uh, interesting songs, there isn't any correlation with more mating success and more of this. I think it's more complicated. Perhaps there's a sense of a best song that we don't quite understand. Why are nightingales singing so much? Can we figure out what makes one song better than another from the perspective of females? Or maybe that's not even what it's about. Maybe something else is going on entirely. I suppose we're a bit speciesist, that we feel that there's certain things that are uniquely human and animals just can't experience, you know, those type of emotions or things. Do you, I mean, maybe just a little bit of human prejudice. Oh, there's a lot of that, of course. We, we like to think we're so special. But actually, it makes uh, it's us more special to recognize the sense of aesthetics in other species. It makes us more, uh, kind of more advanced and more, uh, you know, more attentive to what's around us. It doesn't make humans less to say that animals are also making music. It makes us more because we expand our sense of what music can be, which is something that's happened over the centuries. You know, more and more wide-ranging kinds of sound we accept as music. That's why we have to look for definitions that make music wide enough to include just about anything when someone says something is music. You know, so many kinds of sounds are out there presented as, as being musical. We have to then include what animals are doing once we're going to admit the wide range of possible sounds as music. And I'm not just talking here about people like John Cage who are saying that listen to everything, it's musical, but also, you know, the rise of, of you know, noise, say, in, in, in popular music. Although I think it's always been there. You know, we take electric guitars were designed for this clear, pure sound. You could just plug it in and immediately we started distorting it, adding fuzz, adding, adding effects, to this kind of sound and, and enjoying those things. And if you go back, you know, how, how did percussion get into European classical music? Because of wars with Turkey, right? That's how cymbals came into, into uh, Vienna and the music of Europe. This kind of crashing, noisy sounds became integrated into our music. We like those sounds. We like noise when, when we want to put in, in noises and musical elements that are not easily defined by... Uh, in standard musical terms. One of the things that you uh, have kind of talked about, and I, I'm going to try to recreate these metaphors, and you can correct me when I'm wrong, 
But, uh, you know, you talk about birds kind of being the most obvious example of music in nature, that it's the one that we seem to have latched on to the most. Then you've got the whales, which you kind of compare to singing these great arias of the sea. And then bugs, it seems, kind of are the percussionists, the, the, the rhythm instruments of the natural world. Uh, would you agree with that kind of metaphor? Yeah, I think you've got it right there. You know, I think uh, one thing that surprised me is how many people seem to like this bug music stuff. I thought it was really strange and weird. And it seems surprisingly acceptable. Like people have no problems thinking these strange electronic sounds are musical. And uh, in a way, you know, it's just as I sort of suspected, but I didn't quite believe that, that people would follow me there and, and, and find these sounds quite familiar and musical. And I, and I would... Uh, point out how much they relate to what insects are doing. In fact, I, w I was in Berlin visiting some electronic music software developers and said, like, look, you know, your product is very good at imitating these very specific insect sounds. You know, all you have to do is tweak these settings and the sounds are sound more like the insects than the real insects themselves. They're like perfect examples of what the bugs are supposed to be doing in terms of synchronizing and, and the way the kind of animal acoustics scientists talk about what bugs are doing is similar to the way electronic musicians talk about what's going on. They're speaking of oscillators and carrier frequencies and things like that and frequency modulation. It's the same kind of technology but applied in a different realm. And they were very interested to, to notice that and said, hmm, we didn't realize that. Your book, I was reading it uh, night before last and I, I was going along. This is the book Bug Music. You know, and I stopped for a second and I listened and I noticed all the bug sounds that were going on outside of my house. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I uh, have been in this house you know, for a year and I don't think I've ever noticed the bugs that were outside. And surely, you know, it's summertime. They've been doing this for a couple of weeks at least. I, so uh, I, I went outside and I brought my field recorder with me and I turned it on and uh, sat, sat outside and closed my eyes and just listened. And, uh, and it's really fascinating. Actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to play the clip of the recording that I made real quick. So this is what was going on outside of my house. What I thought was really interesting is that I was sitting there, and I swear that one of these bugs was playing a Latin jazz shaker part. Like, I mean, it was consistent. It had all the accents in it that it needed to have. Uh, and this was just fascinating how much we might have been influenced by these sounds and not even noticed it. Yeah, they had to have made up those, those shaker parts based on the insects going on outside in the, in the rainforest, wherever these percussion instruments were invented. Like, we, you know, we have to have picked up on that right from the beginning. And people, you know, people in general have loved the sounds of singing insects at night and overlapping rhythms and, and such. And it's really, there's a sense of rhythmic overlap and actually the sense of different species listening to one another, which is often said to not exist in birds. Birds really just keyed into their own species sounds. But I think insects respond more directly and simply to rhythms and tones around them. I even noticed these cicadas that I have in my kitchen. You know, when I'm, I, I grabbed some singing 17-year cicadas yesterday before it started pouring rain out to bring to some presentation tonight. And you just grab them when they're singing. So you know, okay, this is a singing male. And they really responded to all these songs on the radio that were in the same key, similar to this tone that they, that they respond to, which is anything kind of 
sort of it's an ambiguous tone. Anything between C and E, things in those keys, they would sing along with, and it would sound like it worked, you know. And they really, you know, they really responded to that. And I was saying, huh, that's kind of strange. One of the comparisons that's made in your book is uh, about bugs being more like machines that are running these little programs, and that these songs kind of seem to be built in to the code of what makes them bugs. So it it makes you wonder what's going on, especially if they're responding to that different type of music that they're hearing. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of science that describes all animals as little machines. And most people who spend time with animals don't like those characterizations. But with insects, you know, their brains are such much simpler. They are like little programs and you can model what they're doing. Like if you look on the Bug Music website, there's a, there's a whole model of how crickets synchronize. You can download and run on your computer that uh, this friend of mine programmed. We wanted to see if it's really true that this this equation we had read about really would make a lot of uneven cricket sounds to synchronize if you let it run for a little while. Does it really work? And it did work. So it's generally believed that's how, um, you know, those insects that synchronize manage to get in sync is that they don't have to know that much, each individual one. So as a, But as a whole, hundreds or thousands or millions of them, it forms this emergent music out of these simple rules. What what are your favorite bugs for making music? Obviously, cicadas and crickets play a really important role inside of your book, and most of us are familiar with those. Uh, what what are your favorites? Well, you know, uh, singing crickets with very pure tones, like the snowy tree cricket, it's a very beautiful sound. But you can hardly ever find one of them. You know, they're so tiny, they're high in the trees, and they're they're um, difficult to actually deal with. As with most insects, are very elusive. You sort of, if you're going to play live with them, you're kind of playing with all the sound that's that's resounding all around you. People have said that katydids are very good for um, playing live with because if you if you trap one, that they'll re- they respond very clearly to rhythms. If you go, they'll go. If you go, they'll go. They'll kind of outdo you with a number of of sounds. And several scientists talk about playing, you know, tapping old manual typewriters along with the insects. But there's something remarkable about these periodic cicadas where millions of them come out every 17 years. And they're strangely docile. They don't go away from you. You can just pick them up. You can move them places, you know. You can watch all this behavior going on, this kind of complicated mating ritual that I describe in the book with these three parts. You can hear all these things going on. And they don't fly away from you. You can just pick them up, and it's just so easy to deal with. And and people are filming them as well. It's, it's unlike filming any other animals. They're just right there. They don't go away. They're very easy to work with, which is kind of surprising. It's part of their sense of there being so many of them when they come out that they're not afraid of anything. It doesn't matter if, they, if, if a few hundred of them are eaten by, by dogs or raccoons or cats because there's more. There's millions more per acre. You know, there's too many, and so, so they're quite fun to spend time with. But uh, the sound, any a more common sound to play along with is to just play with the, you know, a, a, a warm summer night's thrumming, overlapping world of insect sounds. It's really interesting to pay attention with. And I think as musicians, if you're used to playing along in strange situations, like uh, jazz musicians who travel around the world and perform along with people from different cultures, maybe you don't speak language that we speak can't talk so easily with with people with whom you don't share a spoken language but you can always play music with people from different musical cultures there's an openness which music has which is one thing that expands out into other species we might not know what these creatures are thinking or if they're thinking at all but they're making music and so music is a way you can connect 
as a human being in the, our human species with all kinds of other species in the world, birds, bugs, whales, frogs, who are making a music that we can find our way into. It's not what a species is usually doing. We know their music is not, has not evolved to be for us to listen to, but we can still experience it and understand it in a deep way by interacting with it. Actually, this leads me to a question that I was really curious about. Again, you've made music with a lot of different animals. You've uh, made music with birds. You have had a very interesting system for making music with whales. And then uh, you also have made uh, music with cicadas. There's a video of you just covered in them like you're being attacked. It, it looks very interesting. <laughs> and uh, and I like how you're talking about you know jazz music being particularly suited for it as you are already doing so much improvisation and listening and call and response type of things. Uh, do you have some tips for making music with animals from your experience? The biggest tip is just to leave space, to play a little and listen. Sometimes I see people do this and they just don't stop playing. They leave no space for any other sounds. So it's just them doing their thing in the middle of other creatures. So you really have to stop and listen and wait. It takes a lot of time. You should play as little as possible. If you really want to practice it, play a little bit, listen, play just a tiny bit more, listen more, and really leave a lot of space for the, this other world of sound to influence you. And if, you spend, if you're serious about that, you'll find that the very presence of these other creatures' musics is going to change your own sense of what your music is. You'll, you'll make yourself open to new musical ideas. None of these sounds I, I use on the bug music record, all of these noisy, thrumming, whirring sounds, I, I didn't find these sounds too musically interesting until I started listening to insects. I wouldn't use those sounds. I'd move away from them. But in this process, I started to like a whole different kind of sound. You talk about using uh, different types of instruments with bugs than what you used with some of your other experiences. Do you think that different timbres work better with different instruments? So, for example, would you want to maybe match the timbre of the instrument you're using to the timbre of the music that you're trying to connect with? Sometimes. Do you want to hear some cicadas? They're starting to sing in the next room. Yeah, bring them in. Let's see if they'll join in. guys have anything to contribute here? What do you think? I'll just leave them right here and see if they'll, they'll, they'll maybe respond if they hear things they like, like because they're sitting in their little insect habitat. That's right. This just turned into a concert. They'll start doing something. You know, the cicadas are, are uh, you know, they, they've been waiting 17 years to sing. So some of them will be happy to try and sing there's two basic species here one of them is making this pharaoh sound like and the other one is going so those various sounds might inspire them but other things might too you know, they, they, as I said earlier, they, certain tones they like and related sounds. I started playing the iPad to them because iPads make – they have all sorts of apps that make strange electronic noises. And it seemed to be – it was actually my son who was 13 who started doing that and really figuring it out. It's like, oh, this is interesting because some of these uh, apps sort of make these odd sounds. You're not quite sure what they're for. But if you're playing them in the midst of millions of singing cicadas, they start to make sense. <laughs> Uh, do you do you do you have a favorite app? The best app for performing, I find, is Animoog. 
which is um, comes from the Moog company, and there's something about it that it's really like an instrument, and it's not quite like any other instrument. So it's actually it rewards you to play along with it. And it it does surprising things, and you can actually change the sounds very well, like on the fly, right as you're performing. And that one really stands out. It's not imitating any other kinds of instruments. It's its own thing. That one is one of the best to perform with, and it also cuts through other kinds of sounds. So that's far and away my favorite for performing. There's others that make interesting sounds, like like alchemy. I like, but those sounds are often too subtle to perform with. They sound good at home. And uh, there's another very kind of two two sort of uh, easy to use ones by Jordan Rudess called Tachyon and Sample Whiz, and those are also really interesting to play around with and kind of uh, you learn a lot about sound processing in both of them. They're kind of clear and fun, and all of these in some version also work on iPhones, you know, on smaller screens. More people have. I recommend trying them all out seeing what happens and I, I like the ones that don't imitate existing instruments but make you do musical things that you wouldn't immediately expect and when you wouldn't know I, I want to be surprised by my instruments I want them to teach me new things make me express things I otherwise wouldn't know how to express uh, do you ever have this this was a question that I was thinking you ever have an animal that just hates the soprano saxophone Often I don't play the soprano saxophone because it's so loud. I, I tend to prefer clarinets and, and quieter instruments. And the, I had the saxophone then; it was incredibly loud. That one spot that's on the, in the film, and also I, I had heard that cicadas in Japan really liked shiny things. It seemed like it, it didn't make that much difference. But the sax, saxophones also sound good outside. That's what they were designed for. So, but definitely, you know, some animals don't like any of this. Sure, if they seem really upset, then I will um, avoid them. I, I just envisioned a whale running away from a Kenny G concert. I don't know what whales would think about Kenny G. You know, whales like the sound of motorboats underwater. That's how they end up colliding with ships. Um, I don't know what Kenny G thinks about whales. I have often talked, though, with, with students about who, most people who love Kenny G, and yet most saxophonists don't like they don't like Kenny G so much. Now, why is that? Are they jealous that he's sold more records, or or is there something else? And it's, the standard answer is that there's a certain way of playing that you're you're not supposed to play. It's too excessive, excessive, uh, certain kind of easy emotionality we're not supposed to like. You know, that's supposed to be uh, too much syrupy kind of sounds. And yet, if it's so popular, you know. Isn't it, doesn't that make it good? I know my friend, a neuroscientist, Gary Marcus, wrote a book, Guitar Zero. He talks a lot about popularity. He thinks things that are really popular are somehow good. And I'm, I was telling him, well, not always, you know. And he says, well, that's just you, – you musicians are just – you have your own ideas. But look, if Kenny G really is the best-selling instrumentalist of all time, then he must be good. The human species must like his music. I said, okay, well <laughs> – I can understand that argument. I, I think that most saxophonists just feel like if the entire world was only going to know the name of one saxophone player, that shouldn't it be like, you know, Charlie Parker or somebody? <laughs> would it have to be Kenny G? Right. So then the thing is like, okay, what do you do about that? How would you convince people they should like Charlie Parker more? And uh, it's an interesting task. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I would like to hear someone do it, like a really good talk about uh, why you should like Charlie Parker more than Kenny G. On the, on the one level, people are not going to because he's playing too many notes. People don't like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> on the other hand, 
you know, uh, I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure you could convince people. I think you, you could convince them that he's important, but they might not want to listen to him as much. But it's, it's an, an interesting task for music education in general. Like, how do you convince people that this music is, is, is better? Is there any difference? Like, I'm teaching these introductory music classes sometimes, and you know, most class to my students who are all like studying engineering and business and computers in New Jersey, and it's a state school. It's kind of like often they're the first generation their families to go to college. Classical music means movie music or car commercials. That's what they think. <laughs> or cartoons. And sometimes they know that there are concerts, live concerts of video game music that orchestras perform. And these kids have played video games for years and years. And when they hear the same songs, the same pieces performed by orchestras, they know that if you go to those things, they'll often burst into the tears because the music means so much to them. And you hear it transformed as an orchestra. But they don't have much experience with this in general. And so you, how do you convince them this stuff is is, is important it's, it's kind of tough you know you can't say look all the music you like is is worthless and just popular and this stuff is serious they don't want to hear that you have to sort of explain something about why it is this music is still performed hundreds of years after it was written it must count for something yeah i think everyone tries to focus in on aesthetics and craftsmanship and unfortunately aesthetics isn't necessarily universal and craftsmanship, I guess maybe that's the only point that you can really make, but that doesn't mean that somebody's going to like it. Right. And, you, and you know, people – I often have students give, give short presentations of the music they really like. Tell me what's so great about this, you know. And they, it's interesting, you know, how they, what they're excited about and how they talk about it. And um, sometimes those are musical things, sometimes not. Well, uh, it makes, makes me wonder if, you know, maybe there's uh, many more animals making music – and we just don't like it. Oh, I mean, a lot of things, things we don't like, like, uh, you know, we don't like the songs of Starlings, but it's actually a really interesting sound. You know, and a lot of the sounds I'm presenting as being musical, people don't start out liking, like the cicada noises. A lot of people find it, find it scary and kind of frightening, the idea of millions of these things all around. And then when you start to listen and, and, and pay attention to it, and particularly this pharaoh kind of sound, pharaoh, Pharaoh and the millions of them blurring into one. People start to appreciate it more, and they start to hear the the, the beauty in it. And uh, but but there there still will be many people who find the sounds jarring. A lot of people have problems with whale songs; they find them disarming and kind of growly and like indigestion things like that. But I still think it's like any music from a, a culture you're not used to. You have to spend time with it. Can you tell me a little bit about making music with whales? That seemed to be the most complicated process, and your uh, your website that I read described it as a little bit dangerous even. Uh, I don't think it's dangerous, except that it's against the law. You're not supposed to harass marine mammals according to the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, the whales, you know, you go to a place where they sing a lot. It's, it's during the mating season in Hawaii or Dominican Republic. You can go tropical places where whales are known to congregate. And then you have to uh, listen underwater. So you stick an underwater microphone down. You hear what's there. And often there's a lot of whales. It's sort of like a lot of cicadas. You hear a lot of singing going on at the same time. You want to get close enough to one. So you sense you were there with an individual. And then you also need an underwater speaker to broadcast. If you're playing something like a clarinet, you send the sound underwater. And you're listening with headphones to what's going on at the same time and trying to interact in real time with what's there. And very often they will ignore you. Very often, 
they'll just not pay attention. But in the best moments, it really feel like the whales are interested in this strange foreign sound and might be responding and playing around with it. It's not really a surprise because this is an animal that does change its songs from year to year. You know, it does change its sound. So they're, they're, it's not a surprise to think they'd be interested in, in new or unfamiliar sounds. Do you mind if I play a clip? You made some uh, some music with a whale that was in a captivity, and it seemed to be imitating the sound that you were making. Oh, the beluga whale, yeah. Uh, do you mind if I play that clip? Sure, go ahead. All right. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Well, beluga whales, which are very closely related to dolphins, they use sound in, in a very interactive way, as if it's kind of like a language. They're all talking with each other. And it's well known that they will imitate sounds that they hear. And that, but then that same sound, that, uh, that note that I played that the whales seem to be interested in, when, I, when then I was in, in the wild in Russia, I think it was a, a G. It's a G or an A. I think it was a G. That the the uh, the some when I play that same note, the belugas in the White Sea in Russia were also responding with a similar sound. You know, so that must be a tone that means something to them. And belugas, their sound has been studied a fair amount, particularly in Russia, and particularly under the Soviet Union, when the beluga whales were put forth as a secret military weapon, just like American Navy was working with dolphins, the Russians were working with belugas, and they said, "Oh." Our belugas are way better than your dolphins. We'll see. <laughs> One thing that's clear about them is their pitches are more in in line with what humans can hear. So um, that, that's one sense in which beluga sound is more accessible to us. And of course, the ones in captivity are kind of bored. They don't have that much to do. They love hearing interesting sounds and will play around and interact with people. So uh, just like parrots. And bullfinches in captivity will do very different things. I think small whales in captivity and dolphins will do very different things if they're spending all their time around with people. Uh, we've talked a whole lot about animals making music, but since that isn't the only way that you can participate and be involved with music, have you seen the videos of various animals dancing to music, such as, I, I think instantly about the mariachi band playing for a beluga whale, or uh, of the, the numerous birds what was that beluga doing with the mariachi band did, did he dance back and forth or he, he was uh i've seen part of that clip but i can't remember how the whale was responding he, yeah he was he was waving back and forth like was intensely watching and seemed seemed to be kind of swaying to the music it doesn't surprise me at all i think uh, i think animals are very interested in these rhythmic musical aspects of what people do probably more than us talking more than other things that we're doing that, that music in its tonal and, and timbral and rhythmic qualities is the kind of thing that can communicate across species lines pretty easily. And I assume you've seen dancing parrots as well. Yeah, I know, this, I know the controversy about the dancing parrots. I know there's this, uh, this parrot named Snowball who, uh, whose owner says this is the only parrot who really dances in rhythm to human music. And this, bir this bird likes the Backstreet Boys in particular. And once I did a presentation with Snowball and Irene Pepperberg, which you can see online at the World Science Festival a few years ago. However, I don't think that behavior is uncommon at all. I think that uh, many large parrots sway in time to rhythm, rhythms like this. And I know for a fact just from driving with these cicadas yesterday, they're very happy to sing along in rhythm with human music that's in the right key. And it doesn't surprise me at all that insects would do that because so much of their music is rhythmically based.
this is where I assumed that YouTube is just going to be a, a huge resource for researchers because I've seen countless, countless videos of people, you know, filming these animals dancing and uh, and making music. And those people would have just had those things in their living room going, oh, well, that's nice before they all had web phones. Right. We have so much there out there. There's a video of a cat playing Animoog, the software I was telling you about. And I can easily see it's the kind of thing cats would like. That's, that's true. I like that. Uh, right. Very, very cool. My goodness, I feel like I could interview you for three more days, but I assume I can't. Uh, is there something that you really wanted to talk about today that we haven't talked about yet? Well, the, the big question I would throw out is that, you know, you, your your audience involves all kinds of music educators. And the question is how I would ask all listeners out there, how do you think you could integrate the study of, of music of animals into your educational activities? Do you think that students should be encouraged to to try and understand the musical qualities of what animals are doing? Figure out what, how a mockingbird song is put together. It's in a very organized way. Scientists haven't really figured it out. They're afraid of mockingbirds because they're so diverse. Each one is doing different things. And yet they're not just imitating sounds. They're putting it together in a very musical way. What's the best way to understand that? What's the best way to get students interested? Have them play along with animal sounds? Have them go out live and, and interact with other species? Or, or uh, try and analyze what's going on? There's a lot of... Uh, different things that can be done out there. And I would encourage everyone to try it out and experiment in their own way. Very nice. Do you have any advice for people that really want to research animal sound? Like how do you get started with that, uh, et cetera? Well, it depends what kind of, at what level you want to do the research. As you know, in science, there's a whole literature of animal communication. Much of it not doesn't take the musical side seriously, which is something I've criticized in that. Uh, but there's a lot that can be read about what science says about different species. So, you know, I would encourage you to look into that literature. In music, I would encourage you to just sort of listen and take the, the take the things you hear seriously, and try and find a way to join in. If you're a kind of musician who likes to join in with unfamiliar things, so. Um, but I would definitely encourage everyone to be open to these possibilities and, and try and do it your own way. Well, that's, that's really, that's really fascinating. I'm sorry we couldn't get your cicadas to talk to us. Yeah. Well, they're being very quiet. Let's take one out see, see if sometimes they need, need a little, need a little, you hear this one? Ah, there's the microphone here. Not exactly a song. It's more like put me down sound. <laughs> well, sing for us. Come on, you can do it. The cat's getting very interested in these cicadas. I don't know if you heard the cat was wandering around throughout this talk. I, I see a, I see a picture of a cat, actually, on your profile. Right. <laughs> That's just a random cat picture. <laughs> I don't know why that cat is there. But uh, this, this cat, the real cat, I would say cats, you know, uh, we don't even know why they purr. You know, <laughs> We don't even know exactly how and why they purr. Cat is prepared to pounce on the cicadas now. <laughs> what, what's your cat's name? Arabella. Arabella. Do you have other pets? Uh, we have a lizard. Lizard doesn't make much sound. Lizard's name is Milo. He's a leopard gecko. And I, I've never kept any birds. I've thought about it. If I could get really interesting singing one, like a shama, then I think you could, uh, you know, the cat's about to approach approach the cage of cicadas. <laughs> He's opened this this container before and taken them out. Oh, no. <laughs> mess up your research project. 
Yeah, mostly I just collected them to bring tonight to a talk I'm giving to show to show what they're doing. It's very hard to get singing ones because usually they're high in the trees. You have to go somewhere where they're low. I know, I know this one site just about 40 minutes from here where they're just all singing kind of low to the ground. And that's been the, the best spot for, for this, for, for recording them and filming them. And yesterday I, I recorded some sessions of playing live with them. So the next thing I'm going to do now is listen to that and hear what it sounds like, see whether it's interesting. You often can't tell. You just sort of, you know, there's so many variables in doing things in, in nature. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, I, I know that I kind of brought this to a close, but you just reminded me of another question I had, and that's that a lot of the stuff that you've done, you do live performances with the different animals, but then you've also done some work where you reassimilate their sounds digitally. Uh, what what have you done, and how does that process work? Well, that part's much easier, because you can take a sound, do anything with it. When I do that, I try and learn from some aspects of the sound, some structure and timbre and form of the sound to inform my my own music, to learn from it. And, uh, you know, that's very interesting. It, it, it's quite easy for people to do that. You can take so many sounds and play around with them and transform them. What interests me most is, to, is when, you, as a musician, one's music is changed by that process. You're not just integrating unusual sounds into what you already do. You're, you're somehow changing what you do. Doing the live things is always more risky. You're not sure what's going to happen. You're not sure where it's going to go, what it's going to sound like. You know, people sometimes complain about my underwater recordings. Like, how come this the sound quality is so bad? It's like it's recorded underwater. Everything's <laughs> trans. It's not so much bad as what happens when sound is underwater. It's going to be different. It's going to be strange and unexpected. And some people like that. Others find it's, it's sort of disarming. But for me, it's always important to do both things because you put yourself at this ri- at this sense of risk when you're doing something live like that. It's important to me to be able to be surprised in an unfamiliar situation. So, for example, yesterday I'm playing all these odd sounds, electronic sounds. At one point, this cicada flies onto my shoulder and starts to sing. Just as I'm playing these sounds. And who knows if he's actually listening to them? You don't know. But uh, people were filming that, and I was saying, are you getting this? This is good. (laughs) We have to film this part. We have to wait. (laughs) We had to wait two hours for this exact juxtaposition, and I want you guys to note that, that, you know, this is actually happening. We're not making it up. It'd be easy to make that up in the studio, play the cicada sound, add things. So, Well, and what's interesting about that is whenever you're doing these live performances, the, the bugs are doing their thing, and you're trying to make yourself match into it. And then when you go into a recording studio, you can kind of do the opposite, where you can do your thing and then bring the bugs to you. You could do anything. What I don't like is when you make the insects too much like like human music. I did make a playlist that you can see on iTunes or Spotify of about 25 or 30 examples from the history of human music where insects were an important part of it, which shows some of the different things people are doing. And, and there are many different kinds of music there. That's wonderful. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time to visit with me today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let our listeners go right now. And so you guys, thank you for listening this week and keep on practicing and go go meet some animals, make some music. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. Thanks.